0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Well, welcome. It's good to be here. What I'd like to talk to you about this evening is uh, the third noble truth, the truth of freedom. And then we'll look at some poetry um, describing experiences of freedom uh, by uh, the Buddha's earliest female disciples. So I'll start with um, the story of setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma, which uh, many of you, but perhaps not all of you, um, are familiar with. So according to the early texts after the Buddha's profound awakening he considered whether to try to teach. uh, To teach others what he had found but he was afraid that it would just be too inscrutable. And he wasn't sure he could communicate the truth of his enlightenment. So at this point then Brahma comes down from the heavens and begs the Buddha to teach for the welfare and happiness of all beings. And Brahma assures the Buddha that there were beings with little dust in their eyes. Beings capable of understanding these profound truths. So the Buddha thought about it and he decided that the five renunciants um, with whom he'd practiced austerities for many years, he was confident that if he were to teach, they would be able to understand. And so he walked many miles to find them. And when his former companions saw him, they uh, quickly talked to each other and they decided they weren't going to greet him. Uh, because they were offended that he had given up uh, the self-mortifying austerities that they were still practicing. They thought he'd become a slacker. But as he approached them, the Buddha was so radiant that uh, they couldn't help themselves and they just stood right up and greeted him with respect. So the Buddha explained that he found the middle way, neither indulging in sensual pleasure, nor engaging in self-mortification in an effort to be free from sense desires. And then he gave them his first first, uh, discourse. And in so doing, it's said that he set in motion the wheel of the Dharma. So, as many of you know, uh, in this first discourse he taught his five former companions the essence of what he discovered, namely, the Four Noble Truths. The first of these Noble Truths is the truth of Dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of our human condition. And of course there's many wonderful moments in our lives, but because everything's impermanent, all these wonderful experiences will, at some point, come to an end. So this is the truth that we're all subject to growing old. None of us is exempt from aging. It's the truth that we'll all become ill. None of us is exempt from illness. It's the truth that at some point we'll all die. None of us is exempt from death. It's the truth that eventually we'll be separated from everything and everyone we hold dear. What the Buddha asks us to do with respect to this first noble truth is to understand it, to really get it, to let go of our fantasies that something conditioned and therefore impermanent could bring us lasting happiness or real well-being. So there's nothing wrong with appreciating the good moments in our life, but where we get into trouble is when we cling to things, or to people, or to ideas. Because the fundamental nature of all conditioned existence is impermanence. Something we're destined to lose can't possibly bring us lasting happiness. So clinging to anything is ultimately futile. So the second noble truth is the arising of dukkha. As we progress in our practice, we see that dukkha, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, arises when we cling. And especially when we cling to the idea of me, myself and mine, which is usually what clinging is all about anyway. So what we're called upon to do with respect to the second noble truth is to abandon the arising of dukkha, to abandon clinging. And as many of you may know, uh, this is much easier said than done. But it is the essence of our practice, letting go. And our golden key to this letting go is mindfulness. Often, by the time we notice that we're clinging, we're already caught. And so we're called upon to keep our mindfulness alive, moment after moment, whether we're sitting in meditation, walking down the street, doing the dishes, going to sleep. And one of the most um, meaningful insights I've had in my own practice is that there's nothing... Absolutely nothing that's not worthy of our mindfulness. And this is revolutionary. What I mean is it can revolutionize our practice. It can revolutionize our life. And it can revolutionize our path towards freedom. So just knowing and putting into practice that everything, absolutely everything, is worthy of our mindful awareness. So when our mindfulness is really keen, then we can begin to see the arising and passing away of everything that we experience. And we see intimately how our bodily sensations arise, how our feelings arise, how our perceptions arise, how our intentions arise, and even how our consciousness arises. And then we have a first-hand experience of how ephemeral it all is and how empty of self it all is. The German-born spiritual author Eckhart Tolle uh, puts it like this, he says, ultimately you're not a person but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. So this mindfulness is our key to letting go. When mindfulness is sharp, we actually see the ephemeral and empty nature of everything that arises in our experience. And then letting go of clinging to it is just the obvious course of action. It's kind of a no-brainer. And it's by no means a sacrifice or some kind of loss. So when we we really see impermanence and selflessness, letting go of clinging arises naturally, even effortlessly. And it requires no real agency on our part. So letting go becomes the natural consequence of seeing clearly. And there's a beautiful refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the application of mindfulness, which is repeated after every set of practices that the Buddha prescribes for us. And it goes, And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner abides. And then focused on whatever the practice had been. Mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of mind states, or of mind objects. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner abides. So, without clinging to anything in the world, we come to the third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of suffering, the truth of freedom. So in Christianity, there's the good news and that's the gospel of Christ. And I have a proposal for uh, what we could see um, as the good news in in Buddhism, which is the third noble truth. Uh, This is the truth that freedom is actually possible. It's the truth of freedom is the natural, inevitable consequence of letting go. And you may have heard me share this one before, but I'll do it again because I love it and so do many people. It's a quote from the great master of the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Chah, and he says, freedom comes directly from letting go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. And if you let go completely, your heart will be completely free. And there's more good news. So maybe uh, we won't manage to let go completely in this lifetime and be perfectly free like the Buddha and like his fully awakened disciples throughout the last two and a half millennia. But if we let go a lot, we'll have a lot of freedom. And if we let go just a little, well, we'll have a little freedom. And even tastes of freedom are quite wonderful. And it's really important to celebrate these tastes of real freedom because they open the doors to deeper and deeper letting go. So the fourth noble truth that the Buddha taught in his first discourse is the Noble Eightfold Path. And these are eight factors of wisdom, virtue, and meditation that we're called upon to practice and to perfect. And in so doing, we create the conditions that will make us ripe for awakening. Again, awakening is not something that we can make happen. It can't be a function of our own volition or agency. And this is because it requires seeing and abiding in things the way they really are. That is, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and without an enduring self. And again, this is good news. All we have to do is to continue little by little, developing our virtue, our meditation, and our wisdom. And we will be creating the conditions for the natural unfolding of awakening. And we can trust that once we've entered the stream of the Dharma, that stream will eventually carry us all the way to the ocean of Nibbana, of complete freedom. The Buddha teaches that there are ten fetters that keep us chained to our suffering. And the very first of these fetters is the belief in self-identity. In the process of awakening, as described in the early texts, the first stage of enlightenment is called stream entry. And for this to happen, we need to let go of three things. We have to let go of our belief in self-identity, we have to let go of doubt, and we have to let go of the belief in rites and rituals as ends in themselves. But once this happens and we enter the stream, there's no turning back. At this point, we're so immersed in the Dharma that we can completely trust that it will take us exactly where we need to go. And the scriptures tell us that it will eventually take us to full awakening. Here's how one of the principal teachers of the Dalai Lama, Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche, expresses the importance of letting go of me, myself, and mine. He says, the idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly. It is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. If you overcome the belief in a truly existing self today, you will be enlightened tomorrow. But if you never overcome it, you will never gain enlightenment. Use any practice you do to dissolve this idea of I and the self-oriented motivations that accompany it. Even if you do not succeed in the beginning, keep trying. Essentially, there are two types of practices that prepare the mind for liberation. Awareness practices and what Gill calls emptying practices. In the earlier stages of the path, emptying practices are characterized by abandoning, abstaining, relaxing, purifying, and letting go. And the awareness practice, practices operate in tandem. They stabilize the mind and they reveal what needs to be let go of. And in order to see clearly, we need to empty the mind of projections, especially the projections of self that we overlay on our experiences. Then as we continue along the path, little by little, we increasingly empty ourselves of greed, hate, and delusion. So, some of you have been practicing for some time, and if you look back, I'm sure you'll see even if it's not quite perfect, that most of you have acquired some degree of ease that you didn't have before. And as we continue our emptying practices through meditation, the mind does become increasingly receptive, malleable, and free of obstacles. Some say that it's impossible to describe Nibbāna, complete awakening, because it's unconditioned and therefore language is inadequate. But nevertheless, language, especially poetry, can at least point to Nibbāna. And as uh, examples of this, there are two entire volumes in the Pālī canon devoted to poems on the theme of awakening the Theragata by fully enlightened monks, and the Therigatha by fully enlightened nuns. So now uh, I'd like to share with you some of examples of this third noble truth of freedom, some wonderful poems of awakening attributed to these early women practitioners. The first poem is from Vira, Vira's name means hero. And like uh, six other of the authors in the Therigata, the nun Vira had been a royal concubine of the future Buddha before he went forth on his quest for enlightenment. For the other six former concubines, the Buddha appeared to them in a radiant vision, speaking their verses to them as instructions. But for Vira, she received her verse directly from the living Buddha. And all seven of the former concubines were enlightened upon hearing their verse. And then they repeated it as their own to announce their awakening. So here's what Vera spoke to herself, repeating the words of the Buddha. The name you are called by means hero, Vera. And it's a good name for you because of your heroic qualities. You're a nun who knows how to know well. Take care of the body. It's your last. Just make sure it doesn't become a vehicle of death after this. So here we have a former concubine of the Buddha who became a nun and practiced heroically. And when the Buddha says that she's a nun who knows how to know well, he's recognizing how she's cultivated insight and wisdom. And I think uh, in many ways, knowing how to know is one of the qualities that we most cultivate here at IMC. For me, um, knowing how to know means that we've emptied ourselves of the delusion of self, And especially of perceptions that mask reality, that mask the truth of not-self. And then I just love it uh, that at the end of the poem, the Buddha tells to her, take care of the body. It's something probably all of us could do more of, taking good care of our body. The next poem is by Dhamma. Dhamma uh, actually was a laywoman. She had wanted to ordain, but her husband wouldn't allow it. So she lived at home as if she were a nun, including uh, collecting food as alms. One day, she fell down as she was coming home and used that mishap as a support for cultivating insight just like the stick she had used to support her body. When she fell, she became enlightened and spoke this verse. Wandering about for alms, but weak, leaning on a stick with limbs shaking, I fell to the ground right there, and seeing the danger in the body, my heart was freed. As practitioners, even though we may keep the goal in mind, we don't strive for enlightenment. Because uh, strive generally, striving generally has some ego involved. And as we know, anything that's done with a sense of self is obviously counterproductive. So rather than trying to get enlightened, what we do as practitioners is to cultivate the conditions that are conducive to being free. And once these conditions are in place, then all it takes is a catalyst for enlightenment to happen spontaneously. In the case of Dhamma, and her name means truth or Dharma, she seems to have been practicing ardently for decades to the extent that she had cultivated all the conditions necessary for full awakening. And boom, she fell down and woke up. In the next poem I'll read to you, uh, we hear from Ada Kasi, who, although she was from a rich merchant family, uh, when she grew up, she became a prostitute. Her name literally means half Kasi, and you'll see how her poem makes her name into a pun. She says, there's a reason why I was called half Kasi As much as the country of Kasi was worth, my price was just the same. While that was once my value, after too many customers, my worth was cut in half. But then I had enough of what my body brought, and wearied I turned away. May I not be reborn again and again in endless and inevitable rebirths, I have seen with my own eyes the three things that most don't know. What the Buddha taught is done. So here's a nun who'd been an aging prostitute and who'd had too many customers. And when she talks about the three things that most uh, don't know, uh, this is a stock phrase that refers to um, the ability to know one's past lives, the ability to know where and when other beings uh, are reborn, and the ability to know when one's own moral corruptions have been eliminated. So to know the three things that most don't know is to know that one's fully enlightened. Okay, there are now two nuns in the terigata named Mita, which means friend. One is one of the Buddha's former concubines, but the Mita who said uh, the poem I'll read to you next uh, was born in the same royal Sakya family as the Buddha himself, and she was ordained by the Buddha's foster mother, Mahapajapati Gotami. And through her own strenuous effort, she became enlightened after only a short time. And in these verses, she looks back on her life as an ardent lay practitioner, and then her life as a nun, and what she accomplished. She says, Usually, people do all eight lay precepts only on the uposatha day. But I did them on the 14th, 15th, eighth, and even on other days of every fortnight, happy that a God's body would be mine one day. Today, I eat just one meal a day, my head is shaved, and I wear the outer robe of a nun. My heart's fear and its sorrow are gone. I don't want a God's body either. So here's a woman of royal birth who was inspired by the Buddha and began her practice as a fervent lay disciple. Not imagining that she could become enlightened, so she was working to accumulate merit for a favorable rebirth in the realm of the gods. But then she gave up her privileged life and ordained and became enlightened, completely conquering fear and sorrow. And I love how at the end of the poem she says, I don't want a God's body either. The next poem is by one of the two samas in the Terigata. Like the other sama, the sama of the coming poem was a friend of another woman named Samavati, who died tragically and both samas were stricken with debilitating grief. For this sama, the death of her friend motivated her to ordain as a nun. But for 25 years, she made very little spiritual progress. Then, when she was an old woman, she was taught by the Buddha himself and finally gained enlightenment, upon which she spoke these verses. My name may mean one who has peace of mind but I am not aware of ever having any peace of mind even though it has been 25 years since I went forth. No peace of heart, no control over my mind. I began to fear the inevitable after remembering the teaching of the conqueror. The end of craving has been achieved by me and what the Buddha taught is done because of delight in diligence prompted by the many things that are nothing but suffering. Today is the seventh night since craving was destroyed in me." So for me, one of the most moving themes in the Therigata is the the personal struggle, even spiritual despair that many of these first female disciples had. And interestingly, when we compare the poems of the nuns with those of the monks, uh, candid accounts such as this one by Sama, of struggle and despair are virtually absent among the monks' poems. Another theme that distinguishes the nuns' poems from those of the monks is that of loss, grief, and even madness. One account of unimaginable grief is the story of Patachara. She was from a wealthy merchant family and as was the custom at the time, she was returning to her parents' home to give birth to her second child and a great storm came up. And while her husband was trying to build her a hut in the forest, he was bitten by a snake and died. So she gave birth alone and then she discovered her husband's body. After a day paralyzed with grief, she continued on her journey. And when she came to a swollen river, she took the newborn across first. And then, when she was halfway back across the river to get the older child, she saw a hawk seize the baby and carry him off and she screamed. The older child, thinking his mother was calling him, went into the river and drowned. So then, in complete despair, having lost her husband and both children, all she could do was resume her journey. But when she got to her hometown, she learned that just the night before, her family's house had burnt down and they had all died. And with that, she went completely mad and, for a long time, wandered naked from one town to another. One day she happened upon the Buddha, and his disciples, who were pretty horrified by her presence, were trying to keep her away. But the Buddha followed her, and he said, Sister, recover your presence of mind. And then she saw that she was naked, and she asked him for help, and then she has to be ordained. So this is the poem that she composed much later, uh, recounting the moment of her awakening. Furrowing fields with plows, sowing seeds in the ground, taking care of wives and children, young men find wealth. So why have I not experienced freedom when I am virtuous and do what the teacher taught, when I am not lazy and I am calm? While washing my feet, I made the water useful in another way by concentrating on that move from the higher ground down. Then I held back my mind as one would do with a thoroughbred horse, and I took a lamp and went into the hut. First I looked at the bed, then I sat on the couch. I used a needle to pull out the lamp's wick. And just as the lamp went out, my mind was free. So we've heard from six of the 71 nuns featured in the Terrigatta, women from very different walks of life, giving their own testimonials of the truth of awakening. In my uh, initial research on the Terigata, I found six qualities or themes that uh, among these poems of the nuns, that stand out in comparison to the poems of the monks. And these are vivid personal accounts of awakening, facing conflicts head-on with wisdom and compassion, very different attitudes towards the body, loss, grief, and sometimes even madness, personal struggle, and forthright confessions of agonizing spiritual despair. So if we see these texts as models for the successful quest for liberation, they provide what for me are inspiring examples of overcoming sensual desire, debilitating grief, a wild mind, and even the depths of despair. And I feel that many of these poems are as relevant to us today as they were over two millennia ago. So how do you and I approach liberation? We know that suffering arises with clinging. We know that freedom arises when we completely let go of clinging that the cessation of suffering is essentially the letting go of our idea of self. So my practice and my proposal to you is to try to cultivate freedom in as many moments as possible even if it's just a little bit of freedom. And if we remember what Ajahn Chah says, if we let go a little, we'll have a little bit of freedom and a little bit of ease and happiness. So for this letting go to happen what we need first and foremost is to quiet down the mind sufficiently so that our mindfulness can be sharp. And when this happens we can try to be present with our experience right here and now without grasping and without aversion. Just here. But to be present we do need to slow down. I know I need to slow down. Anybody else here need to slow down a little bit? And the reason we need to slow down is to create the spaciousness that makes room for mindfulness. The other thing to remember is that everything is worthy of our mindfulness. Wherever we we are, this is the place to practice. All of our experiences can be Dharma doors. And all that's required for this is mindfulness. And this is the third noble truth of freedom. That the heart-mind can be free in any circumstance. We can see our experience as it really is. With the eight worldly winds which appear and then disappear. And in the midst of all this we can find some grace if we can let go of our reactivity. For me and perhaps for others who have experienced trauma attenuating my reactivity has been a really really long path. But it's really wonderful when that instinctive reactivity starts to subside at last. And as we saw with the example of Vera, we need courage. Courage to face our neuroses with an open heart. Courage to touch, as the Taoists say, and to be present for the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And what's wonderful about mindfulness is that with it we can create some space around our craving and our aversion to our joys and sorrows. So, personally, I believe that there's a pure golden Buddha inside each and every one of us, and that's where we find our freedom, in our own capacity for awakening. But it's in our DNA to want to exist as an individual. So, it's not surprising that it's a long haul to loosen up this attachment to the idea of self. And the next thing we need to do, I believe, and this is not canonical, but I think it's really important for us today as Buddhists, is to connect with the stress, the injustice, and the anxiety in the world right now. To see how greed and our own selfish actions have fueled a runaway economy that's helping, that's depleting our planet to see how collective anger and our own internal aversion is fueling conflict. So our challenge is not only to open the heart for the sake of our own freedom, but also to find ways to embody our freedom for the benefit of all those who are less fortunate than we are. So we honor our interconnectedness. We find our home in our shared planet, in our shared humanity. And we cultivate compassion and wisdom in order to be able to engage creatively and sanely for the benefit of all beings everywhere. We sit in the center of all of today's problems and then we do what we can to contribute some measure of loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity. And we remember that everything absolutely everything is worthy of our mindfulness, worthy of our compassion. So as you practice with these teachings of the third noble truth, the truth of freedom, try to notice those moments when you do let go of clinging. Notice the calm and the contentment that goes with it. And as I said, it's really important to register those little moments of freedom. And I really want to encourage you to celebrate them and to take them to heart. So thank you so much for your attention. We don't have a lot of time, but we can have a couple questions or comments. Well, by the way, the, um, the translations I was reading to you from, there are uh, a number of translations of the Terigata, but this one came out last year uh, by Charles Hallisey, and it's, it's really very wonderful and, and scholarly as well.
0: I've given some thought to this matter of uh, what's in our DNA, and uh, to what extent we can modify uh, the uh, urgings or tendencies or impulses that uh, seem to be wired within us. Um, So, if it's in our DNA to to uh, think of ourselves as an an I, a solid. Existence <laughs> that, for that matter, wants to keep existing, uh, does that imply that it 's impossible to let go of such um, uh, a conceit if it 's hardwired within us but but I, I I think all these tendencies within us that come from our DNA are malleable. Uh, and and it's part of our it's part of our DNA to be able to modify it, uh, modify them. Well, I wonder what you think about that.
1: Well, I think you know we've got some wonderful examples of real human beings who have gone beyond their DNA and, and really let go. Um, and and this is why also I'm I'm encouraging us all to um, register little moments of freedom. Because, as many of you know, that builds the neural pathways, so that so that this um, habit uh, of letting go becomes more and more uh, ingrained in the functioning of our brain. And so it's you know it's it's a long process, but it's possible. And you know the Buddha showed us that it can be done, and many of his disciples did too.
2: When you were talking about uh, letting go of the sense of self, or if you're, you know, I, me, and mine, I just kept thinking I have, like, um, 50 pairs of socks. I really do. And I have them matching my uh, earrings. Megan and I know each other. She knows all this. So uh, I thought, gee, well, does that mean I would let go of my matching socks? Or what, you know, you know that I'm I'm being a little bit silly, but I'm going to get serious here in about 10 seconds. Uh, So um, letting go sounds like such an abstract thing, you know, like I have all these socks and then I have a lot of other things. So would you say that mindfulness itself is letting go? That's it? That's what it is?
1: What I was saying is that um, the, the letting go, the emptying practices of letting go, create the spaciousness in which mindfulness can flourish. If, if, if the mind is full of ideas and stuff and me and mine and plans and projects, you know, there's no space for mindfulness. So the letting go makes the space for mindfulness to be able to do its job. But you don't have to get rid of your socks. You just have to not cling to them. <laughs> That's
2: very difficult. <laughs> I think mindfulness, not letting go makes a space for mindfulness. Mindfulness makes a
1: space for letting go. True, yeah. Yeah, it works both ways. Thank you for that, Linda. Okay.
0: Uh he was before my time. Uh so I wonder if you'd mind. And I've I've read some of what he wrote, but still as far as his personality what so it was of like. What? You've read uh Suzuki Roshi. Would you share with us a little bit about what he was like to uh, be with or to study under? Personality.
1: Yeah, um you know, I was 21 when when I first met him. And um, and I remember vividly that I had been practicing for about five days and I heard him give a Dharma talk. And I knew I was in the presence of somebody deeply enlightened. Here was somebody who walked, talked, breathed, lived enlightenment. And it was expressed as compassion, as joy, as, sometimes as, you know... Strictness and discipline, um, but when we came out of the uh, the zendo, when this this was on the Sakoji place on Bush Street, he would bow to each student as they walk out. So, and he saw each of us as the Buddha, as he saw the bus driver as a Buddha. You know, he, and this was a very very profound teaching for me because. I was pretty messed up still by the time when I, you know, when I was 81. I had zero self-confidence and a lot of self-loathing, and uh, for, for this Zen master to be treating me like a Buddha was transformative, you know? And he, he had a wonderful sense of humor and the real deal, you know? <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it was quite a gift.
2: I was just curious, um, it sounds like you started off with Zen Buddhism and then at some point you um, started um, studying other types of Buddhism. Was there any specific reason or did you just wanted to change up your practice? I'm, just, I'm not familiar with the, the difference, the, the big differences between all of them. So.
1: Yeah, uh, <clears throat> there there are some differences. Um, I I stayed with the the Zen practice for nine years, three of those years in in, uh, intensive monastic practice, which I think of as the best years of my life. Um, But then I didn't see myself becoming a Zen priest. And also after Suzuki Roshi died, uh, his successor was not something somebody I was comfortable continuing with. So that was the main reason that I left. And uh, and then I discover this wonderful Theravada tradition, and uh, it's, it's I find it very beautiful, very um, accessible. Okay. So. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate